Well, we started um, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, on the uh, question of church government and then the role of women in the church. And so um, I'm going to go quickly over where we were, just catch everybody up. One question can summarize the differences, and it's a big controversy in the church today. Should some, and that word some is important, should some governing and teaching roles in the church be restricted to men without specifying which ones? Complementarian view says yes. The egalitarian view says no. Scottsdale Bible Church is complementarian because Scottsdale Bible Church has uh, a man doing the preaching on Sunday morning, uh, the lead pastor, and that's a, that's a man, though we have women on the pastoral, I mean, on the, sta- on the ministry team, like uh, Patty Boomer and Margie Galloway, but they don't do the preaching. And then we have only men elders. So some roles are reserved for men here, though many, many res- roles are also open to men and both women. Um, affirmation of equality and importance, because we're equal in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, and male and female, he created them. We talked about that, and there are other New Testament verses that talk about these things and say we're equal in God's sight, but, but, uh, but then there are differences. And point B, some governing and teaching roles in the church are restricted to men. This was the main passage that we looked at um, the last time we talked about this. Let a woman, 1 Timothy 2.11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And this is in the context of when the church meets. That's the context there in 1 Timothy 2. Uh, Not to teach, which is what Jamie does on Sunday morning, or I think what I'm doing right now here, teach the Bible, or exercise authority over a man that's governing over the whole church. Rather, she's to remain quiet for, and then he gives two reasons, Adam was formed first, then Eve, that's creation, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And, and uh, I don't, can't remember where we, if we talked about that or not. Uh, and um, so that's, that's the primary verse on this issue. Um, so uh, we talked about that. I'll skip over this. Women could not teach or have governing authority over the whole church. However, having said that, the next point I wanted to make was look at the rest of the New Testament. And in the New Testament views positively... Some other kinds, other kinds of teaching and other speaking by women, like explaining the Bible to anyone in more informal settings. So Priscilla and Aquila, this guy, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila took him aside. They heard him, they took him, took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And that's the sense of that pros elabanta, that Greek word. They, 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 they kind of didn't rebuke him publicly, but they, in an informal setting, together talked about uh, the meaning of the Bible and, Priscilla, and the verb is plural and and both were contributing and viewed positively. Uh, Bible teaching to other women. Older women are to, verse 4, train the young women to love their husbands and children, etc. Uh, Titus 2, 3, and 4. And Margaret had a group of, uh, I guess, mostly younger women. Uh, over just, and she does this, with, and a number of others of you do this, in, in, uh, either in informal ways, where you have a friend or somebody you talk to, or in formal ways where you have Bible studies or mentoring programs or whatever. That's uh, a very much encouraged. Evangelism in any context, um, uh, that's not preaching the church, that's speaking to unbelievers. And, and missionary work by women uh, as well as men would be encouraged, therefore. And other speech activities in the assembled church, like uh, uh, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 11 about a woman praying out loud in a church or prophesying. Uh, and that's a, I think I'll get to that a little bit later. So my conclusion is Bible teaching and governing over the assembled church restricted to men. But how does it apply in practice? And I've got in my book oh, about a list of 84 different activities in a church and say, well, here are very few that I think probably the Bible would restrict to men. 
But here are just tons of activities that are both open to both men and women. <clears throat> and we talked about this diagram. Uh, Paul says, no, don't teach or govern the church, but yes, Priscilla and Aquila talking to, each other, talking to Apollos about the Bible, uh, people sharing with each other about the meaning of the Bible, Pammy raising questions here in the Bible study and saying, what about this, what about this, or making a point, or, or others uh, doing the same thing. All that's very appropriate. And, uh, and in between, then there's more wisdom required. Now there are objections. <clears throat> Objection number one is, and, and let me tell you, why do I have such a long list of objections? Because there are a whole lot of people in the church today that don't agree with this and just don't think it's right. And I have talked with them and written articles back and forth, and I know many of them, and I'm just kind of summarizing some art. But do you, do you understand why this is a, a contentious issue? <clears throat> it's, um, it's, um, it's counter to the culture. Um, and uh, for centuries, it was kind of assumed to be true, but now people are saying, well, maybe this, you know, maybe this isn't right. So here are some objections. And they kind of come from scholars who kind of work with the Greek text and say, wait a minute, here's a special reason why it shouldn't mean this. And I'm going to give you some of those. Well, uh, objection number one, people say this is not a permanent prohibition, but was imposed because women were teaching false doctrine at Ephesus. Why do they mention Ephesus? Uh, when I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay here, there in Ephesus and stop those who are teaching wrong doctrine. Okay, good. Thank you, Doug. Um, so Timothy is in Ephesus. Paul's writing to Ephesus. And so some people say, aha, which is a certain situation there, which is a special situation. There were women teaching false doctrine there. And uh, so the verse is only for that situation. Therefore, it doesn't apply today. Okay? Ooh, well, is that a good, good reason? Uh, my response is, we do learn about false teachers in Ephesus, but they're all men. 1 Timothy 1.20. Oh, you know what, Doug? Can you just read verse 20 at the same time while you've got your Bible open? Oh, uh, the last half of verse 19 and then verse 20. Okay, I'm going to have to have your help on I'm, oh, pronouncing well, that guy's name. Hymenaeus. Uh, for some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Hemines and Alexander are two examples of this. I turned them over to Satan so they would learn not to blaspheme God. Okay, so they're, they're spreading false teaching in the church. But Alexander is a man's name. We know that even in English. And in Greek, Alexander is a man's name and Hymenaeus is a man's name. So there are people right in the beginning, right just a few verses before, and they're teaching false doctrine, but they're men. And then you go over to 2 Timothy 2, 17 to 18, I won't turn to it, but it mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have gone astray by teaching the resurrection has already taken place. And uh, Acts 20.30 also says Paul is predicting that men will arise, and it's a specific Greek word for men, not people, in Ephesus to teach false doctrine. So, um, you know, a minor objection to this point is uh, it's just contrary to all the verses that talk about false teachers. <laughs> Uh, that it says they're men, not women. So, so why, <clears throat> uh, why does Paul prohibit women from teaching if men are teaching the false doctrine? It doesn't fit the facts. And then um, I was on Moody Radio 
nationwide call-in program one time with a, a Wheaton College professor who was arguing the other side of this, and he said, women were teaching false doctrine at Ephesus. And I said, Gilbert, my friend, where? Give me a verse. He said, well, here's a verse that says women were gossiping. And I said, well, yeah, I, I know people who, I know some people who gossip, or I've known some in the past, but that doesn't mean they believe all the right doctrines. They're not teaching false doctrine. Gossiping is not teaching false doctrine. And so <clears throat> there's no historical evidence in the Bible or outside the Bible that says women at Ephesus were teaching false doctrine. And moreover, it's not the reason Paul gives. Paul says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He doesn't say, for some of you women are teaching false doctrine. So it's really precarious to put in a, a reason the Bible doesn't give and take out a reason the Bible does give. All right? That's objection number one. Objection number two. <clears throat> well, the reason women couldn't teach in the early church was they weren't well-educated like the men were. Well, I mean, that sounds reasonable at first. The problem is it doesn't fit the facts either. For one thing, within the Bible itself, I mean, if you go back, let a woman learn. Um, both men and women are to learn in the church. And, and didn't we have Priscilla and Aquila together explaining the way of, <clears throat> way of God <clears throat> to this Bible teacher Apollos? Priscilla knew quite a bit. And she seems to have lived at Ephesus uh, a lot of the time in her life. Um, in fact, if you delve more deeply into the book of Acts, you see that when Paul was at Ephesus for three years, you know who he stayed with? He stayed with Priscilla and Aquila, for they were tent makers. Now, just think about that for a minute. Priscilla had the Apostle Paul as a house guest for three years. Would she learn a little bit of doctrine? <laughs> well, I think so. I think she would. So again, when you look into the facts, and Jesus taught women as well as men, um, you know, his interaction with Mary and Martha and all of these things showed no distinction. So I don't, I don't think it's true that women were not well-educated. Well, now some scholars um, have done work into educational systems in the ancient world. And uh, Stephen Baugh, Stephen Baugh at Westminster Seminary in California, in fact, he wrote the notes on Ephesians for our ESV study Bible, and he's, he, he's a kind of a world expert in the inscriptions in ancient Ephesus. Inscriptions are the writings on stone things that are still left in the city. He's been over there for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. Just, so he's, this is his field of specialty. And, he's, and Stephen Boss says, though they were not commonly found in fields like philosophy, women did read and write literature and poetry during this period. And he says, from Ephesus, archaeologists have discovered several examples of writing by women, including some poems and prayers. The Oxford Classical Dictionary says, in Greek culture, girls too, were educated at all age levels. In some cases, they came under the control of the same officials as the boys and shared the same teachers. In other cases, separate state officials were responsible for them. And in their Roman culture, because you had Greek culture earlier, and then Roman culture with the Roman Empire uh, becoming more dominant in the first century before Christ, in the Roman culture, you had the overlap of cultures, the inclusion of girls in the benefits of education, they spoke, speak of that. There are many references to literary works by women, though few survive today. And then Clint Arnold uh, from Talbot Seminary at Biola and Robert Sosi, both of whom I just saw last week. In fact, Clint Arnold was just now elected the new vice president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He's in line to be president. Um, he's a New Testament professor at, at, uh, at Talbot. 
they say there is now inscriptional evidence. <clears throat> and again, that's inscriptions are the carvings of words on like stone doorposts or stone tablets or things that remain from an ancient city. There's now inscriptional evidence that women served in some of the cities in a position that would be a close functional equivalent of our superintendent of schools. That is in the capacity of a gymnasiarch, uh, gymnasiarchos. <clears throat> the <clears throat> gymnasium, or what we would say gymnasium, was the center for education in the Greek city. So it wasn't just for physical activity, it was the educational center. The gymnasiarch, arche is ruler, had oversight of the intellectual training of the citizens and for the general management of the facility. Inscriptions dating from the first to third centuries, that's AD, attest to 48 women who served as gymnasiarchs in 23 cities of Asia Minor. Ephesus was in Asia Minor. It was the largest city in Asia Minor. 48 women who served in 23 cities basically as superintendent of schools this, and in the coastal inland, islands. This suggests that women not only had access to education, but that in many places they were leading the educational system. And they refer to Paul Treblico's study from Cambridge University Press, 1991. So again, the facts don't support this objection too. Women were not well educated. As far as education in general in the ancient world, it looks as though, at the first century, in the centers of the Roman Empire anyway, both men and women had education up through what we would call elementary school. Beyond that, only a tiny elite went to the academies. But, of course, ordinary Christians didn't, most of them didn't do that. And so uh, elders wouldn't have had to have that advanced training. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip over some of these and just say they're up here and I've written about it, but I, I don't want to pro prolong this too long. But objection three um, has to do with a, an argument of the meaning of a word. That, that this, this doesn't mean teach or have authority. It means teach in a domineering way, kind of teach in an arrogant, overbearing way. The answer is the word teach just means teach. It's just an ordinary word for teach. There are some special grammar arguments, but they really haven't been persuasive. Objection number four. The verb have authority, authenteo, it sounds like our word authority. Teach or have authority? Um, people have tried to give different meanings to that. And, um, and uh, on your handout, the last letter of the word kind of got an oversized letter C with a, you know, that's wrong. It just should be an O with a long mark over it, and somehow the font came out wrong, and I didn't notice it. But anyway, authenteo, they say, it means I don't permit a woman to uh, misuse authority, or um, even some people say it means murder, but this is kind of what I would call um, special pleading or making an argument based on very, very weak evidence on the meaning of the word. And um, in, this, in that book that I mentioned, the bibliography at the end the, that I have written, Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth, I, I write out in English sentences from 84 examples of this word 
authentic, that have been, that's all that people have found in all of ancient Greek literature, they've found 84, because they really looked hard for it. But from all over the ancient world, they found 84 examples of, I'm sorry, 82. 82. Um, and I've got them on page 675 to 702. I've got the English translation. I think I have the Greek text there, too, for specialists who want to look at it. And, and a former student of mine, Scott Baldwin, traced down all of these and, and showed what they mean. It, it's just a normal, ordinary word for exercise authority. It doesn't mean usurp authority, misuse authority, or anything like that. There's one possible instance out of the 82 in 390 AD from the Greek father Chrysostom where it perhaps means domineer or misuse authority, but that's 300 years after the New Testament, and I think that one's even uh, questionable. So, um, uh, and, and the word, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it just doesn't occur in all those uh, to mean murder, until maybe one time in the 10th century, and that's probably a copyist's mistake. So my question is, on people who make this objection for, say it means some other kind of authority, a misuse of authority, why should we give the word this meaning, that it never takes up to the time of the New Testament, takes only once or never later, instead of the meaning that it clearly has many dozens of times? I think we should give it the meaning that it clearly has dozens of times, just ordinary word for authority. <clears throat> I'm going to skip over objection five. I'm going to um, skip over objection six because uh, that's more specialized and you can read about it if you're interested. Objection seven, people say, well, you know what? We're going to have a woman do the Bible teaching in our church because the pastor gave her permission. That's objection. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And my answer is, what else in the Bible is the pastor going to let me disobey? I mean, wait a minute. If the Bible says don't do this, well, then can the pastor give you permission? Can you, you know, can you meet your friend going down the street and say, where are you going? Well, I'm going to rob the bank. Well, why? Well, I'm out of money and my pastor gave me permission. Wait a minute, it says you shall not steal. How can, you, how can the pastor give you permission to disobey what God's word says? I, I, don't, uh, I, don't, I fail to understand the force of that objection. So I, I, I think that's, a, that's not a correct procedure. Um, objection number eight says, wait a minute, this thing about only men having, being the pastors and the elders, that was culturally relative. We have a different culture today. And my response is, wait a minute, Paul goes back to Adam and Eve and the way God formed them. And uh, it's back to creation. Let's see. I think, are you patient with me? I can go into one more. Is this all right? I don't, I don't want to bore you with all this. But. Okay, here's another way that people try to avoid this. They say, you know what? It, the Old Testament kind of made a start on how God wanted us to obey. And the New Testament in ethics, the New Testament made, Old Testament made a start the New Testament went to a higher form of ethics, but you can see it's moving on a trajectory. Old Testament, higher form of ethics to New Testament, but it wasn't perfect. And if we just follow the direction it was going, we see that, that Paul would have been, if, if, he, if, he'd, if it just lasted a few more years before he wrote, he would have gotten to the point of full inclusion of women for all offices in the church, but he didn't quite get there. 
And so we can see the path from, you know, Old Testament, very restrictive view of women in leadership, New Testament, women doing quite a few things, and it's going toward women being full elders and pastors in churches. Trajectory argument. Paul was moving there. But he didn't quite get there by the time the New Testament was written. Now, I want to see if you can respond to that. What we should follow, then, is this, not the Old Testament, not the New Testament, but this higher ethic that we can figure out by watching the direction. What do you think about that? That's persuaded some people, even at Dallas Seminary. Um, trajectory argument, uh, which is kind of surprising to me. Not, not the president, not Mark Bailey, but some others. Um, Phil? Phil? Oh, is it like God's learning as he goes along? That's a good question, Phil. Okay, okay. Anything else? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, it's probably another indication of how pervasive Darwinian thinking is throughout the culture. <laughs> Darwinian thinking. Everything is evolving to a higher form, therefore the old isn't as good. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan? You can apply that to anything else then, I would think, in Scripture. Yeah, you could apply it to anything else. Yeah. Yeah, and, and let me just tell you, there is one group in the history of the church that would very much like to follow this trajectory argument. And it would say, Jesus didn't say too much, Jesus appointed apostles, but didn't say too much about church government. Then by the time of Paul and the other New Testament writings, you get elders and deacons. So very simple church government. Then you get elders and deacons but it's heading toward cardinals and bishops and the Pope. And in fact, that was the development in history. So therefore, we should come back to the Roman Catholic Church. So see, that, that trajectory argument can be used by a lot of people if, okay, yeah. Could you argue that the emergent church is like that? Emergent church? I don't know. I haven't thought about that. Oh, yeah, there, there's st new standards for today beyond the New Testament, sure. Okay. <laughs> What's the final standard, the final authority in this argument? Doug? Uh, I don't know the verse, but this is, seems simply adding to the Word of God, uh, which I know we're commanded not to. Seems like adding to the Word of God. That's my main objection. And, I mean, what you've said is right, but my main objection is, our standard in this viewpoint is no longer the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's where we think it's going to go. And you can argue all sorts of things from that. See? Paul, Jesus had, well, I mean, let me see if I can think of some more here. I'm, I'm not going to give you more examples. But the point is the standard is what the scholar's idea of, of where it was heading. Your standard is not the Bible anymore. You've got a, your idea of where things should have gone. I mean, that really is underlying, undermining. Um, there's a man named William Webb who wrote a book called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, and he developed this argument in a big, thick book, and I wrote something against it. But William Webb is the main, main proponent of this trajectory hermeneutic or a way of interpreting. And uh, it's becoming a, a great rage among evangelicals, but I think it's very dangerous because the authority is no longer... The, the written word of God. John? My, my analogy is the United States Constitution. Yeah. It was written in 1776, yep. where we've gone today and what yep. we've done to it. Yep. 
yep, we need to go beyond what was written to new ideas of what, what, the, what the writers would have said had they been alive today. And that, what Paul would have said if he'd been alive today instead of what he actually said. Our standard has to be the word of God. Okay? Okay. All of these alternative views, point K, have come since 1969 in the, comment- in the scholarly commentaries. Now, there were, I have to say, from the 1600s, the Quakers in England and the United States did have women pastors, but they were kind of a group by themselves. And then in the 1800s and 1900s, you did have some frontier churches, and you did have some revival movements, and you did have, especially among the Pentecostal groups in the early 1900s, you did have women pastors in some churches. But the but it was more based on experience. Hey, God is blessing this. We need somebody, so why don't you do it? But the, the academic arguments have come only in the modern times, not through the history of the church, to try to avoid this. So, and I don't think that anybody really in the, all the literature has explained, going back to Adam and Eve, the way God created us, with, I think, uh, equality in value, but a leadership role for Adam, and Paul's basing it on that. So that's for number L. All right, now we come to verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Oh, my goodness. This is where I say, Lord, I don't really want to talk about this verse. (laughs) But I'm working through the whole systematic theology book, and I want to cover this topic. And writing the book or teaching, my job is to be faithful to the word of God. Uh, And so let's talk about it. Here's what I think we have to say. First of all, This does not excuse Adam. It says he was not deceived, but we know he went ahead and sinned. So what does that say about Adam? Well, in a way he was deceived, but he was not deceived in the way Eve was. So what does that say about him? Well, I'm going to let you think about that. Um, Yeah, Beth? Okay, Beth says, he did it knowingly. He knew it was wrong, and he went ahead. Eve thought, oh, maybe, you know, maybe this is good for food, and it's a delight for the eyes, and maybe, I, maybe I've misunderstood something. So she goes, she still disobeys, but I don't think it's even, I mean, they're both wrong. I don't want to get degrees of blame, but it's very serious wrong for Adam. So it's not excusing Adam at all. It means he sinned deliberately and knowingly. Um, my friend Tom Schreiner at Southern Seminary in, in Louisville, Kentucky, says that he thinks that because of the kinder, gentler, more nurturing nature that God in general has given to women, they are less likely to draw the line on doctrinal matters in the church and say that their best friend is wrong. Um, but, but, but men, for some reason, are given the provision of that doctrinal safeguarding of the church and are, are willing to make the very hard decision to say to even a very close friend, you've strayed beyond the teaching of the Bible, goodbye. Now, that's not a 100%, always men and women, but, but, but Tom Schreiner is saying, you know, might be that there's a relational, deep relational desire that God gives women, which is a wonderful thing, but means they're less likely to draw the line on a doctrinal deviation when it's hard and it's a relationship issue. I don't know if that's true. Um, that's Tom Schreiner's suggestion. Or 
Paul may be just saying that the way God has made us, the way he's wired us, when it comes down to it, the, the trustworthy men in the church are who you want to give and trust the, the protection of the church to. Um, and so he's, he's letting... Well, look, here's what I thought I'd do at this point. Could I have... How many, how many, how many men here now are or have been elders at Scottsdale Bible Church? Ed, Jack, anybody else? Keith and Bob Kane. Could you guys stand up just for a second? Jack, uh, Marco, Ed Grant, Keith, and you know uh, Bob Kane. And who else? Oh, Warren. Way over here in the side. I know. Good. Warren's here. Warren Soberg and me. And <clears throat> anybody else been ordained as a pastor here? I know Wayne Leaston. So, Wayne, would you stand up to... And who else? Well, Ben is now ordained. Yeah. See, what this verse in Timothy... Look, look at these guys. What this verse in 1 Timothy is saying, are you willing to entrust the direction of the church and the safeguarding of the church to these men? Just look, look at them. Are you willing to entrust the safeguarding of the church to these men? See, I am. I am. I know, I know every one of them standing up. I know them well. I know their hearts. I know their love for the word of God. And that doesn't mean that <clears throat> others can't do many things in the church. It doesn't mean that women as well as men can't do many, many, many things in the church. But it says the ultimate oversight and doctrinal direction of the church, we entrust it to these guys. Does that feel right to you? I think it feels right. Okay. You know what? Oh, hold on. You got all you got wives here? Warren? Margaret? Oh, yes. Put your hand on your wife's shoulder. Just... Now, get that picture in your mind. Bev is helping Wayne. She's, she's, she's counseling. She's advising. She's, in, she's interacting with him. And Diane with Ed and Angela with Ben and Pammy with Jack and Melanie with Keith and Margaret with Warren. They're partners. Though Keith is making the decision, they're counseling, to, they're, 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 they're interacting. Am, am I making sense here? They're not without constant talking and getting wisdom and sharing with each other. And Margaret with me so much of the time. But the, the leadership is entrusted to the men. Okay, thanks. What does verse 15 mean? I'm going to give a try at this one. This is the end of the passage. Yet she will be saved through childbearing... If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The grammar is strange, and this is literally rendering what Paul says. I think what Paul had said, even after he said, but Eve sinned, she was deceived. Then he's, I think he wants to end on a positive note. So people don't think, well, wait a minute. Eve sinned, so now that she can't be in leadership. So wait a minute, can you say something positive? Well, <clears throat> yes, Paul is saying. There are many, many wonderful functions and roles that women fulfill. And... He picks out one just as representative of all. It's, it's women will be saved through childbearing that is not forgiven of sins, but progressing through salvation in the Christian life, living the Christian life. Women will live the Christian life by childbearing, caring for their children, caring for their home, caring for their husbands, ministering to others, caring for others, all the things that God gives them to do. And childbearing is just kind of the prominent thing that he mentions, even, of course, though some don't bear children, because Paul knew that. 
but it's just through fulfilling the role that God gives to them and being obedient. I think that what, what's what it means. If they, the women, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Say, go ahead, Paul. Sure, Danny. Don't, don't shrink from verse 14. Um, don't, don't feel bad about having to bring that up. Um, see, I don't want to say that all men make better judgments than all women on doctrinal issues, because I've, I've just met a few within the last few days who are men and make pretty bad judgments on doctrinal issues. But, but I want to say, in general, the trustworthy men in the church are the people that you rely on for that. I, yeah. Well, I don't know, Pammy, go ahead. Say something more. I just, um, I, well, I am blessed. I, I have a, a husband who is godly and who fears God and who is so kind and good to me. And I'd be scared to death to go against his uh, judgment or authority or what. But I, the whole thing, I've never felt Jack's authority over me. I've, I have felt a, a sweet um, yeah. umbrella. And, um, it, it, you know, I, for me, submission is a piece of cake because I'm married mm. to such a treasure of a man. Mm-hmm. But I, I do feel for, for women who are married to ogres and, and gross guys. But the, but the deal is, through them being submissive and obeying God, I believe uh, even an ogre can be softened and, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, 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 and move to that. And Wayne, um, it's interesting. Just at the last elder meeting, um, I was told very clearly that the elders really wanted Pammy on the board. Oh. <laughs> but, I hope not. But they took me and figured that I would go get counsel from her and bring it back to the bring it back to the board. But um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we do as men. Um, we have very robust. Um, vigorous discussions at the elder board. We yep. don't always agree, yep. um, but we do battle yep. uh, over the issues. And there's the, the thing that's uh, impressed me is the elder board gains its wisdom not through one elder, yep. but through all the elders. Yep. And we will go down tracks where we think we know, you know what the answer is going to be, and somebody will speak up or a group of guys will speak up and yep. aren't afraid to speak up. Yep. And um, I think we are equipped as men for battle yep. and for war. And when I we walk so. off the battlefield, we're still friends. We yep. aren't worried about, you know, what she's going to think about us or how he's going to, you know, after yep. we, we do battle and the Lord equips us that way. I think there's a lot of truth in that, Jack. I can disagree strongly with my friend and yeah, we're still friends afterward. Yeah. Come out of the meeting. Hey, want to get together tomorrow? Or, you know, you know, so... I don't know why that works. It just works. Sliver? A couple points. I appreciated, too, that you didn't leave Adam out of the picture mm-hmm. when, when uh, Eve was deceived because yep. Adam was actually given the instruction by God, yep. and Eve had not even been created yep. yet. You're right. And so yep. he failed to give her right umbrella ship Maybe. or whatever. Yeah, was some, there was some failure of leadership there, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then another thing was when Jesus um, came back to the tomb and talked to the women, yep. he commanded them to go tell the men yep. that I have risen. Yep. And that's a form of evangelism where I feel <laughs> I have fit into the picture. Yep. Amen. Amen. All right. Great. Yeah. He, he, he first appeared to women. Greatest event in history. And commanded them to go tell. Yeah, 
figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> Good. About claim the wonderful news. Yeah. Way in the back over here. Um, I understand the. the What's your name? My name's Frank. Frank. I understand the uh, theory of continuity between the Old and the New Testament. I don't divide yep. them or segregate them. Yep. Given that sense of continuity, given the fact that there were uh, an equivalency within that Old Testament theocratic system of elders, I don't know what they were called, but they were obviously clearly there. Mm -hmm. They were subjugated to the judges, of whom Deborah was one. Yep. So I still, I personally still need help trying to understand what is apparently a, a discontinuity in that conjectural statement. Okay. Let us find Deborah here. Where is Deborah? Deborah. This is 8E. And uh, it's one that people often bring up. And I, if, I'm not going to be able to finish the outline. And I'll tell you, I don't think I'm going to bring it back for the third week. I think we'll just say, hey, there's a lot more here and you can read on it. But, but uh, let's look over. Frank uh, brought up 8E on Deborah, and let me, let me just go to that one, because if I'm only going to get a very few more points here, I should at least talk about that. The argument is this. <clears throat> in Judges 4, Deborah provides an example that there can be exceptions in unusual circumstances, and, men, and women can teach and govern when men are failing to fulfill their role. Now, I don't know if you want to open to Judges 4 or not. If you have a Bible and you want to look at it, I'll just refer to a few verses there. Judges 4, verse 1. No, 4, verse 4. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, it's emphasizing again and again that she's a woman. Deborah is a female name. A prophetess, that's a female word. The wife of Lapidoth, that means she's a woman, was... Uh, and actually in the Hebrew, there's a resumptive pronoun, she. She was judging Israel at that time. Now, what did she do? She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, the Hebrew word mishpat, judgment, it means decisions, wise decisions, judgments that were being made. And I I think God anointed Deborah with great wisdom to sort out hard cases and make, make decisions. But it looks like she, they're coming individually or two or three with you know, a dispute or, or a, a conflict for resolution. She never does public teaching of the scripture to any assembled group of Israel. Um, she's not king. Um, I don't think she rules as king. Um, the, uh, the NIV translates that she was ruling Israel at this time, but, um, but shafat means to judge. It doesn't mean to rule, and it doesn't even in the Hebrew lexicon meaning rule. So that's just kind of an interpretation on their part. But the other translations all do. She was judging. And what does she do? God tells her that the people of Israel need a leader, and she doesn't blow the trumpet and sound the troop, call the troops. She goes and finds Barak and says, Barak, God wants you to exercise leadership uh, in the army. And so, um, so I, I would say if there's a situation, people say, wait a minute, we're in a situation in a church where there aren't any men leadership. There aren't any men in leadership. I would say to the woman, women, do exactly what Deborah did. 
Pray, seek the Lord's wisdom, and then when the Lord directs you, go to a man and tell him to start being a leader. Um, Because that's what Deborah did. She didn't teach the people of Israel. She didn't rule over the people of Israel. She exercised judgment and and was greatly gifted and and wise, and she had courage. She's honored. She's She's a prophetess. She must have walked close to God. But I don't think that that overturns what Paul is teaching us or, I don't know, Frank, is that helpful? It's informative, yeah. I don't know if you want to say anything more. Okay, yeah. Well, let's see where we are. It's, uh, we've just got uh, oh, about eight minutes left. Uh, Keith? I was going to just simply remind us all that uh, Jamie arrives in First Peter 5 next Sunday and is intending to do a relatively deep dive on eldership in the church. Oh, he is? Just to connect the dots. Oh, wow, amazing. Okay, good. Okay, let me go back through this. Um, See if we can tie this together. First um, Corinthians, oh, it's number two on your outline. First Corinthians 14, 12, 29 to 36, where um, basically it says, uh, in, as in all the churches of the saints, let the women keep silence in the churches. Um, I think, where's my answer to this? Oh, Point A, 2A, this passage prohibits women from speaking out and passing judgment on prophecies that were given in the Corinthian congregation. Um, I think the prophecies meant somebody would stand up and say, I think the Lord showed me this, and they would say it. Okay? And, and Paul says, you know what? If somebody says something out of line, the men have control over the, over the congregation in that sense. Uh, the women shouldn't stand up and say, wait, that's not true. So if, um, <laughs> John, you wouldn't do this, but if, if John Wiederquist were to stand up and say, the Lord told me that he's coming back next Friday, <laughs> then, then Carol is saying no. What's wrong with that, Carol? I would say that's not true. It's not true. Why not? Because that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. Yeah, Carol's got. He's, she, Carol's hit the nail on the head. You, you, you uh, don't know the day or the hour. I'm not allowed to stand up. But you're not allowed to stand up and say that. Say, John, you're out of line. That's contrary to what the Bible says. What? But, but, but wait a minute. Is he going to get away with it then? What's going to happen? What about E.G.? She's nudging him. <laughs> he could say it. Say, wait a minute, John. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, there's something. This is just about exactly like this that happened at church we used to go to. The past, there was a big decision to be made in the church about a new building program. And the pastor called an all-church prayer meeting just for seeking the Lord's wisdom. And there were about 30 of us or 35 that gathered, gathered on a Thursday night in the church to pray. And we were praying. One person after another was praying for the Lord's wisdom. And then, and then this one guy in the church, he's been there quite a while, he took out his pocket, this piece of paper, he said, I want you to hear what the Lord showed me this week. And he started to read, and the Lord says to this church, I'm angry with you, I'm, you've, you've been sinful, you're rebelling against me, I'm not going to bless this project, etc. And he was angry. And it was totally out of the tone of the regular meeting. So, so Margaret and I are sitting back over here, and I go to Margaret, did you think that was from the Lord? And Margaret goes, because <laughs> see, I didn't think it was either, but I wanted, I wanted Margaret's judgment on it too. And so out loud, I said to him, I'll just make up a name, Zach. I said, Zach, thank you for that, but I don't think it was from the Lord. And everybody's a little bit surprised, but I said it. 
And so then the meeting went on. Afterward, he made a beeline for me. He was upset. That was from the Lord. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have contradicted me, etc. But my pastor backed me up. And my pastor said, Wayne, I think you were right. And, and, um, but I think that was how it should have functioned. See, and I think that's what Paul's saying. It doesn't mean be silent altogether, because just in, verse, in chapter 11, he had women praying out loud and even giving prophecies out loud, saying, I think this is what the Lord showed me. So I think that's okay. So we go over to number three on the outline. You see the underlined words there? Husband of one wife, husband of one wife. <clears throat> that's just assuming the elders are men. Okay? And then you go over to number four. I'll skip over that. Relationship with family and church. Number five. The example of the apostles. Here's another thing. Jesus chose 12 men as apostles. And if people say, well, wait a minute. He wanted women and men to be equal in, in leadership in the church. I say, well, wait a minute. <clears throat> he could have done six women and six men then, right? Husband-wife teams or something. But, but he didn't. So the highest leadership role in the church, he, he reserved for men. And see that verse, Revelation 21, 14? And the wall of the city, this is the heavenly city, had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. <clears throat> that means when we kind of walk into the heavenly city in the, in the New Jerusalem, we're going to look, and there's all the 12 male names right on the foundations of the city. Kind of permanent record that ultimately there's, there's, a, there's equality in the image of God, but there's male leadership that, that is in the foundation uh, of, the, of the names of the heavenly city. That's pretty permanent. It's not culturally variable. All right, we'll go over to verse 6, chapter number 6. Oh, yeah, through the whole Bible. Uh, I don't think there's a woman elder governing the church or doing public Bible teaching. History of the church has largely been in support of this. Number 8, I think you can answer most of those objections. Let me see. Should I look at, number, at letter G? Just as we now recognize that head coverings were culturally relative commands, so male leadership and female submission are culturally relative commands. The underlying principle is don't give offense to the culture. My, my, see, in 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about a woman having a head covering, but I don't see any head covering on any women today here. And it used to be in previous years in some countries, they still do that, but they don't here. And, and I, think, I think we're doing right. And I think that was something culturally relative because I think in ancient Corinth, and there's some, some articles written about this that you can look into, and my book has some stuff on that. In ancient Corinth, wearing a head covering for a woman was a sign that you're married. And in fact, I have in my book a picture of a statue from the British Museum where there's a husband and wife at a marriage, and she's got her head covering, head covered. And, and becoming married was taking the covering or taking a veil. Uh, spoken of that way. And so um, I think in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is saying to married women, don't get rid of the sign that you're married. The redemption in Christ doesn't do away with marriage. But the modern equivalent would be, in American society, it would be wearing a wedding ring if you're married. That's a sign of being married. And so um, it, doesn't, it wouldn't convey the same thing. So I do think where, where there's a physical action that has a different meaning, like a holy kiss or a head covering, then, okay, change the physical action, but the, but the symbol of being married should still be maintained. Okay? Are, are you okay with that? Last one, number, letter H, the argument from experience. What about women who have been blessed by God in ministry? Hasn't there been much genuine fruit in their ministries? And I'm asked this all the time. Well, what about this woman or this woman? Isn't she a good Bible teacher, and shouldn't you let her be a pastor? 
Um, well, what about Beth Moore? Beth Moore is a better Bible teacher than I am. She's one of the best Bible teachers anywhere. Amen. And I'm thankful for her. But no, she could not be pastor of Scottsdale Bible Church. And I don't think she'd want to be. He says, she loves the Lord. She wouldn't want to be. Thank you, See, thank you Pammy. Um, but I think, I think here, the answer is, are we going to obey what the Bible says? Because you can find examples. Uh, you can find examples where, of course, God still blesses his word. Even if, you know, even if somebody's preaching it in, in a way that maybe you know, would be contrary to what he says about... He still, he, people, people who have faith and they believe his word and they preach his word and they teach it, the, the word has power and there is some blessing in it. But that experience shouldn't override the teaching of the Bible. And so in a lot of ways in society today, God is asking us, are we going to follow experience or the culture or are we going to follow his word on this issue, which is a controversial issue. And uh, I'm for following his word. Let's pray.